Hey, and welcome back to the new season of Shade with me, Lou Mensah. This season, we will be reflecting on the power of the image within the civil rights movement. And my guests include founding members of Black Lives Matter, photographers and editors from publications such as Time magazine and ID, curators and art critics. And together, we will be reflecting on the imagery and the stories that came from the Black Lives Matter 2020 uprisings with the people who created them. And I want to say a big thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. I'm honoured to have you all involved in this show and supporting this work and elevating our stories. For as little as £1 a month, you can become a Shade patron and join others in supporting this work and elevating our stories. So go to patreon.com forward slash shade podcast to become a patron. So here we go. Episode two. Image 2, Vogue, the September Issues 2020. Support for Shades Black Images Matter series comes from Chloris, creators of organic superior grade CBD formulations. I talk with the co-founder Kim quite often about our holistic approach not only to health but also to our children's education. An education that nurtures an interest and investment in the world that we all share. And part of Cloris's investment is being a long-term partner of the charity Help Refugees. Cloris's co-founder, Pedram, has spent many years working with refugees as an interpreter. Kim said of our collaboration that it's crucial to support platforms that engage in important conversations surrounding race, as Shade does so brilliantly. So go to chloriscbd.com to find out more about the range and for information on help refugees. And sign up to support Shade through Patreon and you'll receive a Chloris subscriber gift. Okay, so episode two, in conversation with ID Magazine's Fashion Features Director, Osman Ahmed, followed by photographer and former senior photo editor of Elle.com, Mariel Tyler. You'll first hear from Osman, where I'll ask him when he first saw himself represented in the media. I certainly remember after 9-11, seeing feeling represented in the media but perhaps not not in the way that I would have liked and not in the way that you know me or my family or people that I know from the same background identifies with I think that there is this thing I suppose when you grow up without representation you don't realize that it's missing until one day you have a light bulb moment or perhaps you see it and suddenly you think um Hold on, this uh, this is why isn't there more of that? Yeah, yeah, really interesting. I do wonder if part of the reason why we do the work we do is because we are responding to that lack of that we saw growing up. And I remember my first experience of ID was like over twenty years ago when I first went in and and met Alistair McKim and 
And it's been your 40th anniversary, actually. But IDs always led the way regarding visual representation and inclusivity. So, you know, the work has always been done there in that regard. But, you know, when the protests gained momentum and the conversations were happening about representation, I just wondered what was going on or what work was being done behind the scenes um, at ID. Did you see a shift in the internal discussions you were having at work? Like you said, ID has always really covered, um, covered, uh, you know, issues around race and politics and youth culture and activism. And also it, it has a very diverse team. Over the summer, I think the whole team, myself included, felt like this was something that we had to really, really devote our energy to. The online team, we didn't publish any fashion pieces or, you know, it, it, everyone put their focus on covering protests. And and that kind of transpired into the first part of the 40th anniversary issue, which was a zine called Up and Rising, which came out in September. And, and that was a celebration of black voices. It was photographed entirely by black artists, more established names like Tyler Mitchell to to even an 18-year-old, Navani David. So I know that the whole team and Alistair, our editor, was really, really wonderful at saying to everyone, we you, you need to kind of follow your instinct and cover what you think is right and use this platform for for important discussions having worked in fashion magazines you know there is always that conflict id was founded in the with the kind of ethos of diy and street culture and and punk and uh, you know straight up photography and giving a platform for emerging creatives that wouldn't have found a platform in in more traditional glossy magazines it was really interesting to me that in September 2020, we saw more fashion magazines featuring and covering black talent within the content of the magazine, but also on the covers uh, in a way that we really haven't seen before. And, and we have to mention British and American Vogue here because, you know, the world looks to those and the covers are very recognisable and people watch what is happening there. And I'd just love to know what you thought of fashion's response to the uprisings as a whole. It's tricky, isn't it? Because fashion is an odd place to look for deeper political and uh, cultural conversations because by its nature, it is superficial. And I mean that in the sense that it is about visuals, that it's about the look of things. You know, I suppose it's it's changing slightly in that people are becoming more aware of how things are made and, and where they come from. Um, but really, it is an industry that is predicated on change, on trends, on the ephemeral, on a kind of short attention span, you know, so it can sometimes trivialise important things. This year, it, it has really kind of demanded, people have demanded more. It's no longer enough to just have diversity in an obstacle sense. But really, I think that fashion's response to Black Lives Matter has kind of been, you know, it's kind of had a bit of a shock because 
overnight, it has, it has realized that it has some pretty, pretty major issues on an institutional level that it needs to deal with. And that's really, that's something that requires a lot of time. The kind of change that I think that people want to see, the kind of change that is needed, is going to require a much longer timeline of commitment. And and so I think it's too early to say, because as, as I said earlier, you know, fashion, it sometimes adopts things, if only for a season, and then next season, it's something else. Yeah, yeah. You talk of the shock and I sensed the shock and I just thought, oh my gosh, I, I'd love to be a fly on the wall right now in these offices. And as it all happened so quickly, I just wondered if you know that you thought that perhaps internally the magazines were aware of what issues that they needed to look at. Or was it a complete shock? Like, oh, we didn't realise this is how we were viewed and we didn't realise that we weren't doing this and that we weren't representative. Well, I, I, you know, that, that's a really good question because I do think it would have happened because magazines have been in a weird place uh, for a while. You know, they're, they're kind of in survival mode at the moment. When suddenly you've got a revolution on your doorstep, it's mayhem, it's chaos. What is really interesting to me is that in theory, fashion as an industry that is so much about change Um, you know in theory this should be an industry where we are so ready to embrace change but actually in practice it is an industry that is very much built on 19th century early 20th century values and so it struggles to change it struggles to embrace newness as they claim There have been countless examples of big fashion brands being accused of racism. Gucci is being accused of profiting from blackface. Montclair released a line that some say resembles the harmful Sambo stereotype. Katy Perry released shoes. I just wondered what you thought about the pledges that the fashion industry made during the summer and how able are they to continue to acknowledge those pledges? Are you hopeful about that, Alderman? You know what I am? I am. I suppose the beauty of social media is that it is now very easy to hold people accountable. So, but if you make a pledge, there are now, uh, you, you know, and, and you don't keep it, then it's very easy for people to take to whatever platform they they want and say, well, well, why haven't you done this? Or this isn't right? Or we... we demands that you do. And I think that definitely one of the pledges that I was really happy to see gain such such a great response was the 15% pledge. That, you know, the 15% pledge, for anyone that doesn't know, was started by Aurora James, who has her own accessories brand. Um, she is African-American. And she realised that most retailers, you know, they don't carry products or they don't carry black owned businesses black people in america make up 15 percent of the population so she created the 15 percent pledge which is an initiative that that essentially holds retailers accountable to committing 15 percent of their shelves to black owned businesses and i think that that is something that 
is is really simple, really effective. And I know that a few magazines have, I think American Vogue may have also signed that pledge. I think where it becomes more slippery is when it's kind of a vague pledge. The thing is, you have to be hopeful. And, you know, so many of us have been doing the work all along. I hate that term, doing the work, but actually it does feel like work. And it's usually the underrepresented or the oppressed who actually are the ones who have to educate those around us. Um, And so 2020 was a lot. And collectively, the creative industries have really been contributing to move the conversation forward. And I just want to finish off by asking you what light you see in this long road that we're on towards better representation in publishing. It's funny that it's interesting that you were talking about kind of doing the work because, you know, I know that your this podcast is focusing on imagery. And I think that one of the really interesting things for me over the summer was that suddenly everyone was sharing these reading lists. And I was thinking, how but how have you never heard of James Baldwin or Tony Morrison or Myrange? Like it's, it just was anathema to me. I was like, oh my God, like, you know, maybe maybe I have been doing the work, but I I've never thought of it like that. I, it's been so kind of subconscious. With imagery, it is a lot more visceral and a lot more immediate. And, you know, you think of the imagery of the murder of George Floyd is something that really, it just lit lit the fuse of a bomb that just exploded around the world. And I think that imagery, I think, compared to literature, can sometimes be really effective in communication in that way, which, you know, working in a very image-centric industry that is not lost on me and I think going forward that is something that is really on my mind. To go back to the beginning of our conversation, growing up I didn't see representation of myself. An image can tell you that you are beautiful, that you know that you are worth being celebrated, that aspiration is within your reach. We can never have too much of representation because there is no one single image that represents an entire race. Shade Podcast and Convergence at the South London Gallery have co-curated a four-part conversation series where together with our guests, we will be asking, does the media have the potential to challenge racism? South London Gallery's Convergence platform hosts critical conversations, screenings and written commissions, freely available to everyone on their website. For our first talk on January the 23rd, I'll be in conversation with Kevin Morosky, filmmaker, senior advertising creative and co-founder of POC, the network accelerating equality and equity for culturally and ethnically diverse people in the creative industries. The talk will be available from January the 23rd on the South London Gallery website at southlondongallery.org forward slash project forward slash convergence and also on your podcast app as bonus shade podcast content. So I look forward to sharing that with you and I'll see you there. Okay, and welcome to part two, where I speak to photographer and former senior photo editor of Owl.com, Marielle Tyler. 
Have you seen a shift in the discussions that you've been having since the summer of 2020 at work in terms of representation and the narratives that maybe the clients want you to portray or or the narratives that you want to make sure that you get across in your work? I want to say like, like the, the ideas were always there. It was like always trying to get like minorities uh, ideas developed and like getting their ideas to be taken seriously by like upper level. That's kind of like the issue that I would see across the board that I think kind of is happening less because of Black Lives Matter. But it's like it's, you know, diversity is at the table. But the whole argument about like equity versus equality, like there are resources for these projects. But if someone doesn't think they're worth putting money into, like it just does, just makes it harder for certain stories to come about. And then, you know, the people, the minorities or who have to like push these stories are just stretching themselves to make it happen. The movement has kind of got these brands to just make up for lost time, you know. And I, it's kind of um, it's weird seeing these like bigger, bigger brands like try to figure this out because it is a fine line between like a genuine approach and something that's more like performative. It's it's like because. So because everyone's working from home and I like a lot of people, I'm just like bouncing around between like family and friends and stuff right now. And so I, I get, I get to hear like these, like, you know, some of my friends work at like bigger media companies. I get to kind of hear like what, how they're handling things. A lot of my friends have been like overwhelmed by just the way their companies are dealing with it because they're, they're like make, they're throwing money at it because they know it is a serious issue. So they're like trying to educate their employees, but it's also hard because like we as brown people, like we live this. We we have to sit through these like mandatory racial reckoning sessions that these corporations are making people do. And like a friend of ours, I just won't, it doesn't matter where she works, but she has to, like they started the company she works for started like this whole initiative that's like just for black content. And like on top of the work that she does, she now has to contribute to this, this platform that's like just for black content. And like, I'm like, are they going to pay you more for that? Like, why? I don't know. It's just like, that's not the answer. And in September, 2020, we just saw so many covers featuring black talent American Vogue had Jordan Castile's work and Kerry James Marshall's work on on their cover. And British Vogue had Miss Anne Harriman shooting their cover. But how both Vogue's responded to the uprisings was really interesting to me because this is what they are putting out to the public. And obviously we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And I'm just really interested to hear what you thought about the contrast in their responses. Okay, so the idea of these hope covers is... I'm quoting them is to explore in all its interpretations, elevating the voices of those above all who are determined to create positive change. Okay, that's nice. The the juxtaposition between the two publications to me is always pretty stark. I think, I guess I'll just start with US Vogue because I'm a little more familiar with it. It's always been this like aspirational magazine, right? It's like very well curated, good journalism, beautiful imagery and fashion. Obviously there are more magazines that are like more in touch with reality than Vogue, but you know, like garage or cultured or something. But, but fashion obviously isn't always about reality. You know, that's the joy of it. So their point of view isn't always capturing like the zeitgeist and it's partially rooted in this like American elitism that doesn't 
really bode well in today's climate. So in a way, they have been a part of the problem as much as I, I, I have. I love Vogue. I always have. But like there is this kind of like tinge to it that I can't really relate to. And and you think of covers that they've done that have been a little problematic, like that LeBron James Giselle one back in like 2008. And like recently that Annie Leibovitz, Simone Biles cover, like like they, they could have used a black photographer and, or an editor to like figure out that, you know, just to have a voice in the, the say in the um, outcome. Simone Biles is the cover star of Vogue's August issue and fans were quick to note that famed photographer Annie Leibovitz was the wrong choice to take photos of the 23-year-old champion. Why? Because just like many white photographers, she is not properly lighting black women. That cover, offensive. <laughs> it was, it was. I know editors have like a handful of go-to photographers that they use, but if if Vogue like really was trying to be intentional, like why haven't they used more black photographers to shoot the cover since Tyler Mitchell. Like, I think, I think he might, he still is like the only one who shot an American Vogue cover. And that was almost like three years ago. On the flip side, they have, uh, they have had a lot of subjects like Rihanna, Serena, Cardi B, Lupita, like who, who's in the room holding on to these golden tickets that they like give out to black people a few times every year. I don't, and I think they're like slowly starting to see black people like less as subjects and more as potential peers that they can work with. But like going back to the covers, I I guess I, I appreciated that they used artists. Like I think it was like a, a different approach that was kind of like, uh, it's just interesting. You can read more into paintings. I think it's inherently a medium that can be like more abstract, even like, how the artist both depicted just like the skin tones alone. Like I think Kara James Marshall said he referenced his, the way he does his skin tone. It's at the edge of visibility, which I kind of think is how black people are a lot. You know, they're just marginalized until, I don't know, until they can't be like right now, it feels like there's, we just are fed up. Right. And, and the subjects, Kara James Marshall's subject was imaginative, imaginative. So like he, kind of is more representing like the black female kind of instead of just using like fame as a way like they normally do just to like put plaster Rihanna on the cover doesn't really feel like it would work right now but I don't know just knowing that they come the covers come from people who are experiencing what black people are experiencing it feels more personal like um and Jordan Castile like she we're almost the same age like a peer a young woman you know, depicting another peer, I think was powerful. Instantly, like she removes that like male gaze that's kind of nested into a lot of fashion photography. And also like, she's kind of interesting. Like her grandfather was a big civil rights leader, Whitney Young. You don't get black power by chanting it. You get it by doing what the other groups have done. The Irish kept quiet. They didn't shout Irish power or Jew power or Italian power. They kept their mouths shut and took over the police department of New York City and the mayorship of Boston. She kind of is like carrying this big legacy, but through her art, which I appreciate, I think. I mean, obviously, Edward Enninful as like a black male. Like, I just started off from reading the, the letters from the editor and his 
just hits home a bit more. It just seems more in touch than the U.S. counterpart, you know, Anna Wintour. It's hers didn't just didn't seem as sincere. Like, honestly, white white people are part of the problem that black America is facing. Right. So as I don't I don't know if her letter took any responsibility a little too roseate for, you know, the, the climate. But I, I, I guess I appreciate the, the, yeah, the sentiment. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear what you say. There's a difference between uh, a curated response and a lived response from the lived experience. So they're two completely different things. And yes, yeah. When I first saw the American Vogue covers, uh-huh. Like, I adore the work of Kerry James Marshall and Jordan Castile. And, but one thought that I had instantly was like, yeah, I can engage with these covers, you know. Yeah. But, you know, where are they coming from? That's exactly what I thought. What place and what intention are they coming from um, in terms of the editor, you know, because we hear what's going on inside. Uh, you know, I'm wondering what's going to happen with the next issue and how are you going to be more inclusive moving forward and, you know, what is the editor's statement? And I just couldn't get out of my mind all of the things that I'd read from Andre Leon Talley, you know, the things that he had said about the environment there at American Vogue. And The, the world of white privilege is complicated. The world of white privilege. The statement came out of the space of white privilege. I want to say one thing. Dame Anna Winter is a colonial broad. She's a colonial dame. She comes from British. She's part of an environment of colonialism. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, this work is epic. It's brilliant. And so, but my mind is taken to everything I hear about what's actually going on in those offices. And so I have to separate the two, the work and the conversation that's coming through about the environment there. Yeah, going back to like Andre Leon Talley and like I read his book and like reading all that about like his relationship with Anna Wintour. I was like, no, like I don't, you don't want that to happen. Like, Here's this man who has like so much clout and he's so he's so like well versed in fashion. And and I don't know, like in my mind, if it would have made way more sense to have him write something for this issue. Like there's an article of Hamlish uh, Bowles and I was like, why? Why is he writing something? I don't know. It's just like his voice could have been so good in that issue. Like, why not? Like, yeah, yeah, I think so. That's so interesting. It's it's funny because we get given, well, we get presented these products and we're like, oh, yeah, okay. And and then I think that maybe Vogue has some catching up to do. And I've just had a conversation with the fashion features director of ID here in the UK. And he feels similar to you in so many ways about all of this. And he was just saying, you know, fashion is aspirational, right? It's a kind of fantasy. And there's only so much that it can actually do. Um, but what fashion has to do and and realise is that they are aspirational, but perhaps people's aspirations are changing and realise that people actually demand a lot more of the content that they're paying for. And I just wonder if magazines are going to re- respond even more now to this as a turning point, if they are going to respond more to public discourse around representation and you know, they're realising now that they actually have to listen to the audience and respond. I think, I mean, we're 
you know, America's so capitalist, like they, they like, if, if there's money involved, like they'll change. Like, so I think honestly, like they're, they're realizing like the buying power that black people have. They're realizing like the cultural power that black people have. Like, I don't think, I don't think anything can exist if, if black people decide to like the call out culture call out culture is so strong. Like if black people decided to, like they could end thing, you know, like I, I mean, I'm not trying to make it like a black versus white, but like just acknowledging the, the presence and power of black America is it's a huge part of this like reckoning. Like, so I, I hope I, I think honestly that it will change consistently from here on out. Like, even like the smallest things get called out on social media as much as I like, I'm not good at social media, but I appreciate it for kind of the things that's helped to create, you know, this, it's really helped create change in, in media and, um, in fashion too. So yeah, I mean, I'm confident that things will just only get better from here. Yeah. That's really cool because, you know, it's that hope that helps us like put one foot in front of the other each day you know within the environments that we're working and we are seeing change happening and and that's great but yeah there's a lot of work that that needs to be done and and I just wonder what light you see in this long road that we are on together towards better representation I just I hope that just like as a photographer I think that you know seeing black people more regularly in publications and advertising and social media whatever wherever it is like it kind of helps humanize us I think that is the biggest problem here is like empathy America is like so weird right now and I think it's comforting to know that I have a skill set that can like attribute to how black people are seen in the media and how we've always seen ourselves as like intriguing, complex, intelligent, you know, warm, fun-loving people. So like, I think it's as long as people like me are motivated to create work that, you know, shows black people in that light, like, and I like to, I don't just like to shoot black people, which is also something that's like another conversation, but like black, black, you know, black people are like pegged into shooting black people, but I I don't know. I'm like, I know how to shoot all types of people. honestly like baseline it's about like humanization of black people because that's uh, I think that's what gets me the most yeah yeah that's a beautiful and important response and you know every one of us has our own role within that and I think to myself okay you know when my daughter's looking at this when she's older you know this history that we're all living through we can you know I can say to her you know I was having the conversations And I was talking to the creatives who were creating change within the work that they were doing and and it's been a blessing. So, Oh my gosh, you're too nice. (laughs) Thank you so much, Marielle, for today. And that's a wrap on my conversation with Osman Ahmed and Marielle Tyler. Speaking out about your workplace is always risky, especially if it's in an industry like fashion. When I was reaching out to prospective guests to talk about the fashion covers discussed in this episode, there was an invisible line that had to be drawn between them speaking up about their experiences in fashion. um, And also they had to consider the effect that that would have on their current positions. So it's not just uncomfortable to talk about the realities of being a minority within your workplace. The reality is that you could lose all you've worked for. 
and fashion is not ready to face the truths about how they support the scaffolding of white supremacy. We're tired of seeing fashion magazines put just a black celebrity or artist on the cover. This is not the same thing as creating an inclusive and respectful workspace. And it's clear from the stories that emerged last year that many fashion organisations, including, for example, American Vogue, Refinery29 and Man Repeller, for example, were failing their black and brown staff members. So the work has not been done. And so, for coming on this show and talking about their experiences, I really thank my guests for coming on today to share their truths. And those are my thoughts after talking with Osman and Marielle, but I'd love to hear from you too. Drop a line on social media and let me know what you think. If you enjoyed this show, please support the work by subscribing via whatever app you listen to your podcasts on. And consider becoming a Shade patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Shade podcast. Shade is produced and hosted by me, Lou Mensa, and the music is created for Shade by legendary composer Brian Jackson, half of the power duo Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. And additional music is by Luke Cage. Thanks to Content is Queen for assistant editing and to C.A. Davis for editing, mixing and sound design. Be sure to listen to C.A.'s own brilliant show called A Lato Thought. I'll let C.A. tell you a little bit about that now. Thanks for listening. See you next time. My name is C.A. Davis and this is A Lato Thought an immersive podcast that dismantles post-racial myths about mixed-race identities. Analyzing American history, law, and empire, each episode examines a contemporary idea about mixed-raceness in order to reveal that race is the lie that became real. You see, in America, mixed-race people have been routinely exploited to both justify and challenge systems of white supremacy. The hypo-descent rule became the formalized definition of hereditary slavery. But people are not mixed. History is mixed. In the early 20th century, in Harlem, New Orleans, Black and South Asian peoples made lives together. The Creek Nation and the Cherokee Nation joined at Greenwood and Asher, right where the Tulsa riots occurred. And it's those historical processes of empire, war, immigration, economics, that mix us all up. The idea that mixed race people are somehow more biologically, genetically fit. I mean, that's just not true. Some multiracial people say, yes, they are black, but it doesn't encompass the fullness of, say, being raised by a Korean mom. So tune in as academic research and histories are brought to rich, sonic life and woven together with the voices of intellectuals leading their fields. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter, both at L-A-T-T-O underscore T-H-O-U-G-H-T, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app today. My name is C.A. Davis, and I'll talk to you all soon.